settling in. <clears throat> I've got this frog in my throat thing going on. Does anyone have gum that I could? You do? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so uh, these flyers are out front on the uh, entryway desk. And uh, I would encourage you, thank you very much, to uh, grab one or two or a few if you can. And uh, it's simply announcing the spaghetti dinner fundraiser this Friday. And what I'm asking is if you would post them uh, at your local convenience store or one of those locations that's appropriate, ask them if you can put it in the window and hang it up, uh, letting people know that this Friday we're doing the fundraiser for the Mawinney family. And with that, most importantly in doing this, if you could, there's also a sign-up sheet out front. If you could put your name and the location that you intend to put it, because beginning tomorrow, we're going to be traveling all over and putting these signs up. And it's really depressing to travel a great distance and arrive there and find that one of these signs has already been put up. So if you can write your name and the location you intend to put it, that would be very helpful. We need them everywhere. Just Holden and Dedham and Bucksport and Blue Hill and Sedgwick and Surrey and just Bass Harbor and Bar Harbor. We need them all over the place. Um, right now, a number of churches uh, have already responded. Uh, I've contacted uh, all of the churches in the area that uh, I could think of and that I know. And uh, all of them said that they would be announcing it in their churches and putting the flyers up in their churches uh, this morning. Uh, with that, um, it's sounding more and more like we're going to have a great crowd of people here. So if you would like uh, to help in uh, you know, uh, running this, uh, Thursday we're going to begin preparations here. And then Friday we're going to arrive early, probably around noon, and begin the process of resetting the whole church with tables and chairs in preparation for that evening. And then while some of the food preparation will actually take place on Thursday and then on Friday, probably about two, we're going to begin the real, uh, you know, setup for serving uh, the meals on Friday evening, starting at five, going from five to eight. And as you know, uh, Eric Mitchell will be here leading us in worship for a, a period of that time. So, if you can at all help uh, with that whole process, it would be greatly appreciated. And uh, please contact me and let me know uh, what your availability is. Some of you already spoken to me. Um, others, uh, if you're intending to, uh, let me know and put you on the schedule. And that way we'll know who's going to be here available uh, for what. So, um, you know, the <clears throat> some conversations I've had with people like, they, you know, well, the Mawinnies have a camper and they're staying on the campground as though everything's okay. You know, um, <clears throat> everything they own that was in that home is a pile of ash in the bottom of their basement right now. And uh, they are greatly in need. The gracious provision of our Heavenly Father that they have a place to stay, uh, that's really cool. But uh, they lost everything in the fire. So if you can be involved, uh, that would be really great. Let me know. And, uh, we'll, you know, we'll put you to work. So anyway, I don't know. 
Uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy uh, this morning. Uh, we've uh, come partway through chapter 21. We're going to pick up at verse 18 uh, to continue on from there. So, uh, again, Moses recounting the law to the younger generation. Uh, before they go into the land, the older generation has passed away, and the younger generation has seen some of these things and known some of these things, but not in a complete manner. Uh, they were the younger generation watching their parents go through this stuff, and now Moses is putting this all to them as a first-hand, first-person ownership of the law. So he's recounting, uh, essentially, the book of Leviticus uh, to them. And get a, a, a series of particular laws uh, here in the end of 21 and into 22. Verse 18 uh, says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, who, when they have chastened, disciplined him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of the city. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and re rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Uh, seems radical, seems uh, you know almost ridiculous, but uh, now consider the condition of our culture and what's being said here. Okay, you, you say young man, you know son, and if you're thinking you know that eleven year old that really frustrates you, way off the mark. You're talking about an adult who has not. So their son, as an adult, who has not taken responsibility from himself, who's living at home with his parents as a drunkard and a glutton, taking advantage of them and refusing correction and guidance. You know, our culture's very accustomed to uh, adults being completely irresponsible and not taking care of themselves, not being responsible for their own circumstances uh, in this culture no one did this the, you know the average lifespan in some of these settings uh, throughout history you know 35 and 40 years old by the time they're 13 15 no encouragement ladies they're getting married and moving out so so imagine someone spending half their lifetime at home living off of their parents and refusing correction and firm discipline and guidance. Yes, death sentence. Now, listen, I agree with you. That's way over the top for our culture, for our culture. In this setting, the Lord is saying that's going to destroy your culture. Now I'll ask you the question, has it destroyed our culture? Do we live in a culture right, that's filled with social justice warriors who've never experienced anything but have decided from the couch 
that they know how the rest of society should live, and they're all preaching that on their public format. You know, they're on Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and they're just puking out this filth that supposedly the rest of the culture is supposed to live by. It's destroying the world that we live in presently. I read an article yesterday that said the University of California, Los Angeles, has put one of their professors on administrative leave because he refused to be more lenient in grading the minorities in his class than the whites in his class. Imagine for one second any group suggested they reverse that and be more lenient with the whites in the class than they were the minorities. It's outrageous what we're experiencing. No one even recognizes that as racism, right? You know, this is this is the university promoting this. They've put, you know, one of their professors on administrative leave. We need to recognize. I'm not calling for any kind of over-the-top reaction. What I'm saying to you and I is it's very necessary for us to hold the young people of our families accountable, to help them become responsible adults. I had a conversation with parents here years ago. Most of you know I work in a drug rehabilitation facility, a Calvary Residential Discipleship. <coughs> I'm going to die. <coughs> I'll make this a very short sermon. <coughs> Forgive me. They're coming to me asking me for help, <coughs> telling me their son is a heroin addict. I've dealt with it a lot. Had my own drug addiction and alcoholism years ago. I give them very practical advice. <clears throat> In particular, the core of advice that I give parents, and this may be hard for some of you to hear, is that when you have a child like this, <clears throat> we're all familiar, hopefully, as Christians with the story of the prodigal son. You want the son to repent. You want the daughter to repent and get right with the Lord. The three things, according to Jesus, <coughs> and the story of the prodigal son, is that you're coming to me with, I got stuff in my mouth. I'll take it. Thank you. Well, that's more than enough. Um, <coughs> the three things that teach the prodigal son are pain, embarrassment, and want. Okay? Our strongest temptation as parents is to interfere with those things. They get in trouble, we want to go bail them out. The thought that our goodness is going to help them. We take away the embarrassment. They're in need. They need finances. They need help. We go supply. We are actually taking 
the tools that God has put in their life away. And we're interfering with the things that will help them get right with the Lord. Pain, embarrassment, and want are what drive the prodigal son back to his father. And we interfere with it. We stop those things from doing what God designed them to do. Hunger is a very powerful motivator. You you will do things you never intended to do before, good or bad, based upon hunger. If you leave it in place and you steer it in the right direction, it can actually generate change. This this, uh, mandate put out by the Lord, our culture, you know, New Testament, gracious culture would be wise to adapt this to our children to make sure, right? You never want to get to the point where you're having to say, okay, it's time for execution. None of us wants to get to that point. So all of the steps that need to take place beforehand, that's what's being neglected by our culture. We're allowing these things to go on. This family comes to me, son's a heroin addict. I give all kinds of advice about how they need to do certain things in this young man's life. I'm oblivious, right, having not met the son, to the fact later I find out he's 30 years old. Then he's 31 and 32, and they're still ignoring my advice and fostering this. They're paying for him to go through rehab. They're buying him a car. They're letting him live at home. They're paying his insurance. They're they're standing in the way continuously of all the things that would help him to repent. Of course he's going to continue, right? I think if we admit it, right, within every single one of our hearts, there is a lazy glutton that likes the road of least resistance. If, if, if you would just supply everything for me and let me skate by on every circumstance, then the sinfulness within me would capitalize upon that. There, there is a great love. There is a great love in allowing the chastisement to take place, the discipline and the correction to take place. Right? You know, we're finishing our study in Hebrews in our midweek study, and we just came through 11 and particularly 12 that talks about the chastening of the Lord. And it actually makes the statement that if God is not punishing you, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what it says if God is not punishing you, then you must be an illegitimate child. Because God punishes those who belonged to him. Why? There in Hebrews it says, because it is love that compels him to discipline his children. It is really hurtful. It is really hateful to withhold correction and discipline. If you're saying, I'm a person who could never spank my child. Okay. But correction and discipline must take place. 
If, if you can't bring about the physical discipline, which, by the way, the scripture endorses and encourages, then you must find it within your heart to somehow make it painful for that child by bringing correction and discipline into their lives. It is the thing that will help deliver their soul, according to the scripture, from hell. Notice it says, if you'll do this, all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, this whole attitude that some of the sociologists have put forward, like capital punishment doesn't work. Not according to the statistics. Okay, you, you want to say that emotionally you don't care for it and you would prefer that it doesn't happen? Okay, I can even buy that. But statistically, capital punishment works 100% of the time. If, if you will administer it, and, and honestly, it actually works more on others than it does on the individual. That's an interesting thing. Right? Proverbs says, rebuke the scoffer and the simple will learn by it. It doesn't say the scoffer will learn anything. You, you simply correct and discipline the scoffer and those that are being led by the scoffer will learn. I know this firsthand. I was leader of every class I was ever in as the class clown. And when I got firmly corrected, everyone that I was entertaining and those that were following me suddenly stopped because I got the correction. As a youth pastor, once I'd really surrendered my life to Christ, I used this in my youth group continuously. You got the problem maker, correct them quickly, correct them soon, correct them harsh. And no one else in your class is going to give you a problem. Take the time afterwards to talk to them, love them, nurture them. But the discipline is so beneficial to the greater mass, everyone else who's involved. I think you're probably all in agreement with me, but if you have concerns or questions, feel free to talk to me afterwards. 22, uh, wait, <clears throat> verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree his body shall not remain overnight on the tree but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the lord your god is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of god now don't misunderstand this as some endorsement of the especially cruel crime of lynching. This, this isn't God endorsing that in any way. <clears throat> this culture had a practice of when someone had committed a heinous crime, murder, rape, something of that nature, and they were to be executed, they would then hang that person on a tree and post a sign as to what their crime was so that everyone who passed by would see what that crime resulted in. Death, execution. And it would, as we read in the previous section, 
cause a fear within the culture to not participate in such crimes as this person had been executed for. The Lord is saying that if you do that, he doesn't endorse it, but he's saying if you do that, you cannot leave the body exposed overnight. And the reason is some degree of dignity. You feel compelled to make this sort of billboard statement to the public. God is saying, okay, but there's no reason to add humiliation and desecration to that person's life. Take them down, give them the dignity of a burial, lay them to rest. Now, this has a lot of applications in other settings, particularly in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Christ is crucified in this manner, hung on a tree, and his crime is posted above his head. You're probably familiar with that, right? His crime was king of the Jews. That was what was written above his head. Right? He was crucified amongst two thieves to the right hand and to the left. Above their head was posted the sign that said thief. Right? Because he had been examined by Pilate and they had found that he was innocent. He'd committed no crime. So, so what do you put above an innocent man's head? The thing that he's being crucified for. He's king of the Jews and the Jews hate him for that. So that's what he'll be crucified for. Remember that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, that it would be taken down before sunfall and laid in the grave. They wanted to prepare for the Sabbath, which, by the way, was Passover, not Saturday. We can have that discussion at another time. His body put in the grave. The whole concept for the Jews of not wanting to you know, bring shame and you know, defilement upon even a criminal. There, there's a dignity involved in this. What's remarkable is the Jews didn't care, right? They hand him over to the Romans. They have him crucified. He's hung on the tree. They know he's going to be out there past nightfall, and they don't care. The Lord has given these commandments all through the Old Testament that they're supposedly the experts in, that they're supposed to be following, and they violate them all along the way. Right. Jesus whole crucifixion was a violation of the Jewish law. Right. Number one, you can't entertain any accusation that's brought against an individual unless you have two witnesses that can verify the charge that you're bringing. They never found two witnesses, even when they brought him into trial and those people made their presentation. There weren't two that collaborated together on what the accusation said. They contradicted one another in their testimony. You cannot arrest a person who's been charged with a crime. You've got to have a charge brought by two or more witnesses. You can't arrest that person at night, totally against Jewish law, against God's law, what we're reading right here. They come in the middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane and they arrest Jesus and take him away. You can't hold a trial at night, right? Now think about that. You get arrested, you get tried in the middle of the night and sentenced 
And the next morning, your family finds out you're on your way to be executed, and they didn't even know you got arrested. No, no one got to testify on your behalf. No one knew the charges that had come. They're violating the law every single way, including the fact that, I mean, they go through all the various steps. He's beaten while in custody. <clears throat> He's asked to testify against himself, right? We have that Fifth Amendment, which is based upon God's law, that you are not required to say anything incriminating that could cause you to be prosecuted based upon the words that come out of your mouth. The Jews, God actually has a further ordinance that you're not allowed to testify. If you're charged with a crime, it has to be entirely from other people's mouths. It cannot be that you stand and you give defense of yourself, nor do you testify against yourself. You're not allowed to say anything. You're supposed to be silent. They're asking Jesus. They violate every single section of the law all the way up to now they've crucified him and they just sort of wash their hands and walk away. Like now Jesus can just suffer the humiliation of being left on the cross overnight. That was supposed to be, you got to understand this, that whole thing was supposed to be a reflection upon the people who had actually performed the execution. It's supposed to be that God is saying, you might be so filled with anger that you carry out this execution, so I'm going to set this mandate in place in order to protect not only the victim's dignity, but your own. So that people don't look on at your behavior and think, what a bunch of animals that they've attacked and killed this person and just left their body out exposed to the elements this way. By law, you must take that body and lay it to rest. You've made your point, you've committed the execution, and you publicly displayed it upon a tree. Now lay that person to rest. And instead, in the case of Jesus Christ, they leave him on the tree. This Old Testament law ends up being a statement against the people in Jesus' day who carried out the crime of crucifying Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing. We'll move into chapter 22, verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. <clears throat> your brother, your neighbor's possessions are your responsibility. That's what this is saying. You, you don't get to take the approach that our culture does and just say, well, you know, it's not my possession. It's none of my business. This law is literally holding us accountable for one another's welfare. If, if I see that there's trouble on your property in your circumstances, then I am required to assist and lend aid in that circumstance to the best that I can. It's a requirement of the law. There's an accountability if I refuse to do it. The loss becomes partially my responsibility in the circumstances. So here, in this situation, you cannot hide your face from that. You certainly bring it back to your brother. Verse 2, and if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Did you notice that it said, if you do not know your brother? That's interesting. You don't even know this person, right? 
if you and I are sitting here now and sort of reinterpreting what we're hearing, saying, well, you know, they're, they're not part of, you know, Christianity. They're not my brother. They, you know, they're not the person that lives next. I don't even know who this is. So I'll just, you know, take it for myself. Now, around here, a modern application I have run into in 20 years of being here uh, three times that I'm aware of is boats that have been left on shore or come loose from docks. Okay, You paddle ashore in your kayaks, you get out of the boat, and you go off on a hike, and the tide comes in and floats your kayak out to sea, right? And along comes somebody who doesn't even know you and says, beautiful, I've got brand new kayaks. This is literally the law that the Lord is saying of, no, even if you don't know the person, you're responsible for these things. It's interesting how inside Christianity, we, we change the mandates, right? We had a youth group camp out many years ago, had 100 or so kids, Calvary Chapel, Bangor, a group of us joined them. Down here, Acadia National Park, we're on the beach, and one of the kids starts yelling, hey, I found a lobster trap. And there's a little excitement. Well, that excitement explodes when we realize this is not a lobster trap. This is a lobster pot that is full of more than 100 lobster. Okay, This is somebody's entire catch. There's a whole group of people within our group that suddenly now are praying that the Lord will also provide us with butter. <laughs> and we that are local explaining to them, look, you don't understand. This is a tremendous loss for somebody. And we are responsible to help them get this back. You know, the tags are on the pot. We can find out the owners of a couple phone calls. This is going to be back in the possession of the person that it belongs to. And that's what we ended up doing. But sometimes within the Christian, you know, the Christian mentality is, oh, look how the Lord has blessed me. <laughs> no, yes, yes. Blessed you with the opportunity to help someone else. Right. That which was so valuable to them was going to be lost. We need to make sure right at the root of our behavior is constantly selflessness. I think if we're honest, we have to admit that selfishness will spring right to the surface very easily. This, this idea of being everyone's servant, right? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus said the one who is everyone's servant. If we have that mentality, right? Think about it. In that case... Hundreds of other people could have come in contact with that lobster pot and they would have immediately thought, this is mine. Instead, the Lord saw fit that a group of selfless Christians found it and we were able to testify to the owner as we returned it to them. Yes, we have a great opportunity to be a testimony on behalf of our Lord by caring for other people. There's lots of application within this. So, yes, it can stay with you until the proper opportunity to return it to that person. 
you know, consider how that might work. You shall do the same with his donkey, and so you shall do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. Must not hide yourself. You must not hide yourself from the circumstances, from the opportunity to do someone else good. Again, the root of the thing being selflessness, that we would care for and minister to others. We become a great service to the world around us. When Jesus said, right, you are salt and light. When he said, you're the salt of the earth. He, he was talking about, and I've shared this with us endlessly, and forgive me for my repetition, but he's talking about us being a preservative. There was no refrigeration in the day. And if you were going to keep things from spoiling, you salted them very heavily. You pack them in salt and keep them in order to have it preserved for a later date. We are the preservative of the world, you guys. If, if we are not keeping things from decaying, then there goes the world. But Jesus said, if a salt has lost its savor, what good is it for except to be thrown out as trash or garbage? It's useless in the process. Salt can lose its savor. The saline structure breaks down and it's gone and it doesn't have any of its protective purpose or any of its taste-enhancing purposes. We want to be people who are keeping these things. And the church, by and large, is losing its saltiness. You know, uh, my, you, you know how you misinterpret lyrics. You know, you, you hear certain. Lyrics. <clears throat> Some of you guys might remember Steve Miller, uh, "Fly Like an Eagle." My, my, that was on the radio somewhere. My wife and I are present. And she says, "You know, I've heard this song all my life. I just, I don't understand why Steve Miller Band would want to shoot the children." And I said, "What are you?" T- you know, where Steve Miller says, shoe the children with no shoes on their feet. Shoot the children with no shoes on their feet. Misinterpretation. Point being, my daughter, Christian, five years old, in the backseat of the car on the way home from church is singing, I am salty. I exalt thee. <laughs> I exalt thee. She's, she's thinking, she's totally put this together in her mind. You're the salt and the light of the world. And she's saying, I am salty. Look, are we salty? In the sense that we're supposed to be? The world needs it. But because the attitude of the world is entirely different. Entirely different. Just talking song lyrics, I was astonished uh, to pull up and get gas uh, after church Wednesday night. And the car next to me is just pounding. So I'm thinking there's a thug in there. You know what I'm saying? And this four-wheel drive, huge lifted truck. Eventually, this little girl gets out. And she, it's her truck. You know, you can tell she's got her four-wheel drive hat on, jacked off to the side a little bit. And, and the song is nothing but a few words of vile profanity. Over and over and over and over. And she wants the whole world to hear it. And all I can think is, pretty little girl is making herself so disgusted. Our culture is already lost. And we need to be the preservative 
in it. We, we need to take a different tone. Here the Lord is admonishing us in this. You shall not see your brother's donkey, something of less value, right? Or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him uh, lift them up again. So, young man, I had a junky little car for sale. Got good parts. Somebody can use it. And uh, I, I really don't need it anymore. This is a little more than a year and a half ago. And this young man shows up here, and he wants to buy it. But, uh, you know, he doesn't have much money. And he begins to describe all the things he's going through. It's just conversation. And when we finish up, I've got the asking price on the car. So he's scraped together his pennies and he says, so, so basically, um, this is what you want for the vehicle? And I said, well, no, now that I've listened to you, what I want for the vehicle is hundreds of dollars less. I, I just want the $200 that I spent on these tires. That's what I want. And he's flabbergasted and he's standing here now talking to me about, no, I can do it. And I'm saying, I'm sure you can. I'm also sure that if I give you a killer deal on this car, you're going to be able to put that money to use in many other areas of your life. You know, he's not a drunkard. He's working hard. He's trying to take care of a family. And I've got the opportunity. I'm literally being selfish because I could sell the car for a little bit more. And I just make the decision, abandon the selfishness and take what little I have to from this. Oh, I've heard back from that situation, how he's shared with us. He wouldn't believe what that guy did for me. And I know I'm robbing myself by standing here and bragging. I get that. What I'm saying to all of us is there are opportunities everywhere <clears throat> to bless people. You know, they're struggling. They need help. Their donkey has fallen in a ditch, right? Their car has broken down. And they just need a little help. And this little help would take them a long ways, right? You know, even if it's going to dig into your pocket a little bit, have you not learned that the Lord is going to refill that pocket? Have you not learned that the Lord is going to take care of you, that he does take care of you? Look, I look around the room this morning. I think we're all pretty rich on the grand scale of things. The way the Lord has taken care of us. You're going to find people who have fallen on hard circumstances. And look, you, you, when you take advantage of that circumstance, you've suddenly given your freedom, yourself freedom to preach to them. You get to share Jesus Christ, right? They can't say shut up at that point. Right? I don't want to hear it. Too bad. The whole reason that I'm being good to you right now is because of what my king has done in my life, and now I'm imparting it to you. You want to talk about this investment that I'm making in you? This investment is so that I can stand here and run my mouth, and you can't say stop. The, the gospel message needs to be delivered this way. You know, Surely help him lift them up again. Now, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Repetition again, right? 
you got to have the proper definition of abomination. Abomination is that which would cause you to literally become violently ill. To, to literally vomit. Right? Jesus makes that statement many of us are familiar with in the book of Revelation about the church at Laodicea, how they're neither hot nor, luke, or, nor cold, they're lukewarm, and therefore he would vomit them, violently vomit them out of his mouth. This is not something that the scripture shies away from. The idea of something that'll turn your stomach instantly. You know, the sight, the smell of, the experience of causes you to become violently ill. When a woman, and don't misunderstand this, right? If women are wearing pants, that is not a violation of what is being said here, right? If a man has on, I don't know what, you know, a bracelet that somebody might be offended with, that's not what the Lord is saying here at all, right? This isn't like ultra you know, masculinity, ultra femininity. This is when you look upon the individual and you can't distinguish. You you are a man and you are dressed as a woman in such a way that I don't know what I'm looking at. There should be no confusion is what the Lord is saying right there. All right? Cultures are different. You know, this, this culture, that culture might go, are we not confused as a culture right now? You know, about what pronouns we're supposed to use in what setting? I'm not confused, even remotely. I'm not angry. I have zero hatred, zero hatred for people from the LBGTQ community. Zero. Love them to pieces. Wish they were here in fellowship with us, experiencing the grace of God the way I did. The way he freed me from my sexual sin. Many of you from the sexual sin you were engaged in. The beautiful redemption of Jesus Christ. And yet the world preaches against this. You know, portions of what refers to itself as Christianity literally says that God hates that community. God doesn't hate that community. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery, dragged out into the street, totally naked. You know, they're going to stone her to death. And they say to Jesus, the law says this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? They only concentrate on Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. There's two big portions to that they miss. Hear me in this. I'm going to close with this concept. The first one is he kneels down and he begins writing in the sand. Oh, wouldn't you like to know what he was writing in the sand? What we do know is that from the oldest down to the youngest, they began to drop their rocks and leave. <clears throat> I know what would make me drop my rock and leave. If Jesus began to write my sins in my name in the sand, I'm not saying that's what Jesus was doing. I'm saying that would certainly cause me to drop my rock. And look, if I'm somewhere in the middle-aged people and I'm watching the older men drop their rock and leave, I suddenly become afraid that he's going to write my name and whatever, and I'm going to drop my rock and leave. That's the first big thing. Jesus is writing something that causes them to leave. The second one is, 
Jesus doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, and end there. He says, go and sin no more. And our culture needs to hear that. Jesus has grace and forgiveness for everyone, but his mandate is stop sinning. This, this is biblical. This is scriptural. And listen, you need to get, you need to get fired up about this verse. Because in Canada, they're arresting pastors and putting them in jail for six years for simply preaching God's word. Are you hearing about that mainstream you know, media? Not, not as likely as you're going to hear about other things. I've said this recently, and I find it to be true. We Americans are just 10 years left of Canada. They're that much further ahead of us. That's coming for us. Probably sooner than 10 years at the rate this administration is going. We need to be preservatives in the political community, in our environment in our schools in our relationships we need to stand up and say what's true stop shutting our mouths that's exactly what our enemy wants us to do there's a track that was produced years ago called sing a little louder and it was a real historical account of a group of christians that lived near a set of railroad tracks where the Germans were continuously consolidating Jews and loading them on to the trains to ship them off into the work camps and the death camps. And the Christians complained to the, Jew, the German leadership saying, you know, we're heal hearing the wailing and the howling and the mourning of these people. And it needs to stop. The Germans' advice to them was, their order to them was, you need to simply sing louder so that you don't hear it. And I think the church is largely engaged in that. We just celebrate ourselves, sing more fervently when we're together, Convince ourselves everything's going to be all right. That whole thing, listen, make no mistake, it's coming for us. But let me just say blatantly, it's already come for much of the world and we need to stand in the gap. We need to get into those circumstances and be the ones that would bring a halt to these things taking place. Run for city council. Run for the school board. Be involved in your community. Be actively involved in bringing these things to a stop. Say things online. You know, preach to your friends. Preach to your neighbors. If they're, if they're not hearing this, if we aren't there to stop them, then again, I go back to the salt has lost its savor. And if that's the case, then what good are we for? We need to be actively involved. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. There is a fellowship luncheon immediately following 
this morning's service. Some of the guys are going to begin taking down the tables and setting up, or taking down the chairs and setting up the tables. Even if you weren't prepared to stay, didn't bring anything, please stay. Fellowship, get to know one another, enjoy the afternoon and one another's company if you can at all. Sign the uh, sign-up sheet for posting the spaghetti dinner signs. If you're going to do that, please let us know. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity, the decisiveness of your word, Lord, the unflinching truth of your word. Help us to be men and women that follow it, that live according to it, Lord. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your will be done in our lives, in the world around us. And we recognize the irresponsibility of the church in the way that it has not involved itself. Help us to be men and women of involvement. That we would, in fact, be in the public quarter saying the things that need to be said. Like John the Baptist did, confronting Herod, even if it means our own destruction. Help us to have the bravery to do the hard things that need to be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.